kind of want to say something to, well, I guess to to our our members and our guests, but uh, especially to the young bucks who are here. You're going to hear a lot about war and history, um, but I really, really want to encourage you to see beyond and beneath it, because when you peel back these epic epic human struggles that are really tragic and really sad and a lot of lives are ruined um, a lot of lives are made as a result of it and when you really do pull it all back you 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 learn the lessons of character you learn the lessons of freedom you learn the lessons of leadership you're just learning it through a very epic story and the story happened to be unfortunately very very real for way too many people and being free, being free people, is actually really hard. It's not an easy thing to do. We call it the American experiment for a reason. It has to be recommitted to over and over and over again, because like you, on your worst or laziest day, you could be kind of in a bad mood. You could kind of uh, succumb to your old nasty habits, your lower self, your amygdala. And the same thing happens as a country. And so when I see a lot of the division going on in the world, a lot of the polarization, a lot of the pessimism, a lot of the uncertainty. I hope that for you, the young people, especially, and especially the adults set this example, that that's the time to lean in. That's the time to set a course. That's not a time to hang your head. Because if you want the best version of yourself and you want the best version of a country, then you have to be willing to take on anything. And that taking on anything starts with taking on what's inside you first. So we're going we're gonna to hear a number of those stories tonight. Now, whether, how many of y'all seen like um, Band of Brothers? How many of y'all seen episode six, The Battle of the Bulge? Okay, some of you. Um, just looking for a baseline. How many of y'all seen Avengers Endgame? <laughs> higher, higher, seriously. Avengers Endgame. Okay, so just to put into context, World War II was like that. Literally like that. Everything was at risk. All hope was lost. And for a very large amount of people, millions upon millions of people, um, there was a blip. Over a few years period of time, there was a blip. And people are gone. Just gone. And so you really look back, and you wonder what in the world was that all for, and it was for this very, very precious, very precious, special thing called freedom. But it doesn't come without sacrifice, and it doesn't come without effort. So we're going to talk to Jack, someone who is very literally on the front lines. But again, remember, this is, this is not just like World War II theater. This is really about character, leadership, and freedom. Sing beneath it all. Now, before we dig into the conversation, I want to introduce Tom. Tom Langston's a complete stud. I've r recently had an opportunity to, to meet him. He flew out from the East Coast for this, from Pittsburgh, um, because I'm going to let him tell the story of the connection to, to Jack, because I just think it's flipping awesome. But like you, he's another entrepreneur, very accomplished human being, and his life has been intertwined with Jack's and all their epic struggles. And so Tom and I are going to work together on learning from Jack's story and how we get the takeaways. And then at the, at the end, I have a few announcements to make, so please don't run off. Cool? Tom, please. Thank you. Thank you. 
I've, I've always been told when you're not getting paid, they don't want to hear you talk. <laughs> so I'll keep this really short. Um, it's probably 17 years ago, Jack, when we met. About probably about oh, seven, oh, maybe 20 years ago. You're oldest. It's not in how old. 21. So he was probably. We, so we met. We were in Luxembourg at the cemetery in the snow before he was born. Before he was born in Luxembourg. Right. So 20 years born. ago. So my my namesake Thomas Langston was uh, it was a was a uh, in World War II and was killed in action um, on December 16th in, in a town called Obergelbach, France. No history, no knowledge, no family talk. I mean, there was nothing that was shared. And so it was just kind of a weird point in my life where I wanted to learn more about him or learn more about um, what was never talked about in our family. So I started doing just some basic research and what, what, um, what, in, what you know, is in the Army, the Third Army, that's Pat Jack's patch. The A was Patton's Third Army. And on his right shoulder, it's the 87th Infantry Division, the Golden Acorn Division. And... Um, so you start to gain this information, and so as I started to, to learn more about the process, um, the National Archives in, in Maryland, you can go and get the after-action report of the unit of the day of the company. So I was there, I was doing some research, and I met a, a woman that we've become great friends with, Barbara Strang, and she does research and does write, and she writes for, for she does research for, for authors. Anyway, so Barbara and I became grand friends and talking, and her dad was a forward observer uh, with the 912th uh, uh, forward observer for the 87th. And so she and I talked for probably three or four months, and sitting at my desk, 5 o'clock at night, um, which probably a little bit of humor, you know, I would say to Beth, I'll be home in 10 minutes, which is probably like four hours, right? So when you say, I'll be home in 10 minutes. Um, so I get an email from Barbara, and she goes, read this. And I said, okay. She goes, it is your uncle's division unit company which is the needle in the haystack yeah. right yeah literally so i started reading it and kind of longer longer story but i started reading it and i just exhausted i so control search hit typed in our surname langston 62 hits so now my blood pressure goes away you know it's like oh my goodness so I start reading this story and it goes in, in this in-depth, you know, Jack and when my uncle, great uncle Tom met in basic training and just, but it was his story. And um, so I, we, 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 I reached out to Jack um, and connected through his son, um, came out to, to California. I think probably the, the two of the, the most meaningful things I will share is Jack witnessed his death. Was within 10 feet, 20 feet of him when he was killed in combat. Um, unbeknownst to either of us, 10 days before I met Jack, he lost his son. So we've kind of become surrogate. He's, uh, my, he's my son. Yeah, so we spent a lot of time together. So for 20 years, we've gone back to Europe. Uh, we've traveled together. So it's kind of a cool special, um, and, and you've said, you know, at 97, you see this guy's unbelievable. Um, so. I've become a sounding board and you're a sounding board for, for me as well. But a lot of the stories and, and a lot of the emotions that come out of it um, have been, have literally changed my, changed my life, changed me as a human, changed our, you know, our kids' lives. And so, uh, you know, Jack, Jack is 100% a part of our family. Um, but it's a unique story. And I think the things that I've gained through, the, through and we'll talk about it tonight, are the appreciation and the appreciation of seeing things through his eyes. And I think that you'll, I think you'll all be, uh, thrilled with with some of the takeaways in those conversations. So thanks for having me. Thank you, Tom. Round of applause for Tom.
How many of y'all in the room are a teenager? Can you raise it? Act like it or are it? Okay. So when Jack went to war, he was a teenager. Just put that in perspective. There's a number of teenagers in the room. Think about when you were a teenager. When Jack went to war, he's a teenager. So can I just start with the young Wisconsin boy, Jack, if that's okay? Fire away. All right. <laughs> For before you, before you, you went to war, before you went to training, what were you like? What was your life like? Oh. If you could grab that, Jack. That's what you up in northern Wisconsin, hunting, fishing, tobogganing, skiing, skating, hockey, poker. Yeah, poker, as a teenager. Oh, yeah. At early age. Oh, I, life was idyllic up there. Swimming, we lived at the lake every summer. Yeah. Okay. The first thought on our mind was war. Nothing on your mind was war. No. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, nothing on my mind was When the... Uh, when the force first broke out, though, I remember standing beside my dad when I was about 11 or 12 years old, and he would be shaving in the morning. I'd ask him questions about it, and we, we kind of poo-pooed it that it wouldn't affect us. But, uh, of course, Adolf Hitler had other ideas. At the same time, he was getting ready for war, and we were not getting ready for war. We were far anything but ready for war. But the wars, the years slipped by so fast, and all of a sudden I was 17, and I had to do something. Uh, so I enlisted, hoping to get some, get to get to go to into some phase of the military that I would like. But they they threw they threw that out the window very quickly and sent me to the infantry. Uh, and so there I was, and, and there I was to be the the rest of the war, of course. What was well, even just backing up, because I think that's something we could all relate to. You're having family conversations about what's going on in the world, and you have this assumption that, oh, that's, that's not going to affect us. Uh, but the bad guys, are they want it to affect you, yeah. and they're trying yeah. to get ready for it to affect yeah. you. And, and, of course, then Pearl Harbor came along, and that really threw everything in the apple cart. And uh, so we, we, we were fighting the Axis then, and this was a big war now. This was big... This is big, a big time war. This is not a, a skirmish or a, a fire we can put out. This is it. So what's going through your head when you, when you're 17 and yeah. headed off to war? Yeah, what are you thinking? Uh, they had to do what we were told to do. We had no choice. Uh, I tried to get in the Air Corps. In fact, I filed an application for the Air Corps in, in the early in 1944. The application is about a f two or three inches thick. I got affidavits from judges and teachers, and everybody thought I was wonderful. And <laughs> and at that that month, the Kazarine Pass massacre occurred. Did you hear about? Some of you knew about that, I think. In Italy, the Kazarine Pass, the, the, our, our troops there were decimated by the by Hitler by the Germans. It, it was such a bad loss that the Secretary of the Army said, I've got to have more troops. And so they looked around to find where they could find troops, and one of them was to chop our educational program and threw all of us into the, into the we were all uh, fairly smart kids, 
attending various colleges around the country, they threw us all into the infantry. And I think at that, on that month, the average IQ of the infantry went from 85 to 110. <laughs> because we were, we were all pretty smart kids. So anyway, we, 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 put, we went through the war there in, in the infantry. We had no choice, and it was just a, a dirty business, a dirty job, and we were assigned to take care, help take care of it, which we did. So Jack saw, he liberated a concentration camp, um, saw brutal combat in Germany, um, brutal combat in the Battle of the Bulge, um, in Bastogne, and we'll talk about these. But talk about your first time experiencing combat. Okay. The first time, we were, we were in foxholes. We snuck into these foxholes at night, relieving it, relieving it. Is that me? Anyway. We had never been in combat before. We had no idea what we were facing. As the dawn started to break, we could see it was in farmland, dairy country. And we, we didn't see any Germans out there. It looked all calm and peaceful. And the order came down, okay, let's get out of, the, let's get out of our foxholes and start advancing. The Germans are in that direction. That's the way you're headed. And so, so we did. We all stood up and started to advance towards the journey. No, no, no breakfast there. There's no, there were no hot lunches or hot dinners or anything, anything hot in the industry. You had a king ration if, you, if you're lucky to have that. So we got up and we started to advance. We hadn't been on our feet 15 seconds when the first 88 screamed in uh, to my right, just a short distance to my right, knocked down three of my men. Jack, explain what an 88 is. Hmm? What Explain what an 88 is. The 88 was an anti-aircraft gun originally developed by the Swedes. Fantastic weapon, the greatest field artillery weapon in World War II at that time. It fired a, about a four or five inch shell. Super accurate, super fast, and some tremendous explosion. And any 88 put in the right position could dominate a battlefield. It was that, it, it was that deadly. Uh, the 88 mounted on a Tiger tank, and the Tiger tank's another another metal. We had Sherman tanks, that was our brand, Sherman's. You see a Sherman coming down the road, a mile away comes a Tiger tank, he immediately starts firing at the Sherman and hitting it. The Sherman has to get within 500 feet of the Tiger before he can fire his first shot. He's, he's so outgunned. There was a saying in the, in the tank corps, if you're going to, send any tiger, any Shermans out after a tiger, send four and hope to get one back. <laughs> one, one, Hitler's most famous tank commander, Michael Whitman, shortly after D-Day, they were in, moving inland from Normandy, they were in a few miles. Michael in his t tiger tank spotted a British armored division, a whole division of armor coming up through the woods. Michael engaged this British division, one tanker tank. Before the afternoon was over, he had knocked out 54 British tanks, trucks, troop carriers. One, one tanker knocked out 54 British armored units. That 
division was frozen in its tracks and it had to sit there for weeks to be resupplied by England, sent over more tanks, more troop carriers, more other things. And plus, Michael probably killed a thousand good trained tank men in that afternoon in that battle. So they had to re 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 send out more men. It, it was a disaster. But that's, that, just, that just tells you how tough that particular weapon was. Hitler started getting ready for this war in 1934-35. The Tiger tank, any idiot, was one of the things that came out of that. The, also, the uh, Germans had a, a much better machine gun than we did. Their machine gun would fire 1,200 rounds a minute, which means every second, 20 bullets are coming out the end of that barrel. I never saw a single person <coughs> hit by only one German machine gun bullet. They come so, they're so close together, you can't drop fast enough to, to avoid number two, three, four, five. It was brutal. Uh, so the Tiger tank and, and, and the uh, machine gun were, were, were tremendous. We had the Grand Rifle. We, we had one advantage, that was in, the, in our rifles. We had a much better rifle than the Germans had. They had the old Bolt Ash in 1970. And we had the Garand, uh, designed by John Garand, a beautiful weapon, the best weapon in the, rifle in the world at that time. So, um, getting back to the... Uh, so you're in France. Was that your first combat yeah, or was it Germany? Yeah, that's right. We just got over a foxhole. We had seven men knocked down in the first 15 seconds. And I thought, what the hell's going on here? I don't belong here. <laughs> Get me out of here, quick. But, but we, we survived the day. We, we lost a lot of good men. We lost his uncle that, a couple days later. Uh, but, but the Germans were, when you're, when you're advancing, of course, they're picking you off. They were picking us off with those 88s. And, uh, and with their machine guns. Uh, one of my good friends got hit by that machine gun that, that first morning, hit him in the face, missed his brain and missed his vocal, his, his spinal cord, but he spent four years in a, in a, a VA hospital, he had 13 operations to rebuild his face and his jaws and I, I was talking to him one day, his name is Hugh Gorman, I said, I, I talked to him on the phone, I said, Hugh, there's such a thing as a million-dollar wound. Many people prayed for a million-dollar wound. Hit me anywhere, but don't, don't kill me. Just hit me so I can get out of here. And so I said to you, I said, Hugh, did you ever think that you had a million-dollar wound? And he said, hell yes. He would, he would you'd go through anything like that to get out of that, get away from that uh, combat. Uh. I was telling Tom today about the number of men that shot themselves to get out of, this, get out of combat. It was, it was, it was sad. Uh, I, I read about one nurse's report from a division hospital. One afternoon she had, one day she had seven men report wounded, all of them self-inflicted. And of course the government is going to either give them a dishonorable discharge and, and put, or put them in prison or something, but they, they certainly ruined the rest of their lives. Yeah. Anyway, I was, I was George Patton for four battles, four bloody battles, Sar Valley, the Bulge, Siegfried Line, and the Rhine River, each one very, very bloody. I visited some of the sites just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Hang on one second, Jack. Can you all let that sink in? 
he's 97, and a couple weeks ago he was just in Europe visiting some of his battlefields. <laughs> so just let, it, let that sink in. Jack could take anybody. He'll kick everybody's ass here, by the way. Uh, 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 are, are, <coughs> can I stand up? Yeah. yeah. Do whatever you want. Okay. <laughs> our, our division puts out a magazine every six months. And up until about, oh, about 15 years ago, that magazine, 30 pages, the first 15 pages would be reports of combat by the guys and what they're doing, what life is worth, you know, what's going on in their lives. The last five or 10 years, the first 15 pages are nothing but obituaries. The guys are dying off at a very fast rate. Uh, I heard a, a number recently, I don't know if it's true or not, that there are maybe 200,000 veterans left out of the 18 million that were involved in the effort back in, in 1945. Uh, and of that 200,000, about 10% were in combat. So there's maybe about 20,000 combat veterans left. So th again, they're dying off at a very fast rate. All the guys that I was in touch with are all gone now. I, I, I can't pick up the phone and call anybody. <clears throat> but anyway, so the Sar Valley was a tough, a tough place to be. We fought the 11th Panther Division down there for 10 days. And then the bulge broke through. And when 300,000 Germans come storming out in out of the woods through the Ardennes, which nobody thought they could come through, then, then the Americans finally realized that the, the war wasn't over yet. So they, they quickly sent us up into the bulge to fight up there. Well, I got to, first of all, get back, backtrack. I got to tell about my first day I saw George Patton. Uh, I was sitting in an open bed truck being driven up to the front to relieve some division. And we, we never had a heated bus. We always rode an open bus, open bed trucks, no matter what the temperature was or how cold it was. And so I'm sitting there hanging over the side and a Jeep pulled up right beside me and here's George Patton sitting about from here to the edge of that coffee table from me. And there's a, it's a bad road, it's a sloppy road, a narrow road, and there's a truck blocking the road up in front. And so George can't get through. So George's driver hollered up there and says, come on, let's get going, what's, what's wrong up there? And a voice came back from the truck. A voice said, I can't move it, I'm gonna burn out the clutch. And George hollered back, he said, burn that son of a bitch out. That was the, <laughs> George, <coughs> George had a very limited vocabulary, as some, <laughs> as some of you know. So anyway, the truck driver looked back and saw the red flag on the hood with the three white stars. So he pulled into the ditch and George went tearing down the road. But each battle got tougher and tougher. The, the, the Tsar Valley was, it was a meat grinder. We lost a lot of good men. Uh, then we went up to the bulge. We had 100,000 casualties in a bulb in four weeks. That's 20, losing 25,000 guys a week. That, that's brutal. It, it just, uh, it, it just, it was just pure hell. And we were surrounded. We drove into the middle of this mess and within hours we were surrounded. There were so many Germans, we were, we were surrounded and uh, we were destined to be there in that foxhole for six days, night and day. No, no clothes. I mean, no, nothing but our clothes on our back. No overcoats. No blankets. No bedrolls. I mean, just you just. I think shivering, shivering is what kept us going. You, you Jack, know. when you talk about that, we talk about this a lot. Trust. 
right? Mm -hmm. Cold, wet, hungry, mm -hmm. foreign land, homesick. Yeah. Talk about being in a foxhole with somebody, the trust that's involved with that person being next to you, trying to sleep, trying to be reassured. Yeah. I think trust is big. Talk, talk about oh, that. Yeah, yeah. tremendous trust. Two men to a foxhole. The lights go out at 7 o'clock at night. They don't turn back on until 7 the next morning. In that middle of the winter, and it was overcast, tremendous overcast, which contributed to this darkness. So starting at 7 o'clock at night, you and your buddy, you get two hours on, two hours off. You can't, you can't go any longer. You've got to be, be able to come up and, and get up to the edge of the foxhole and be ready for anything. And so you, out of that... 12 hours, you get six hours. But after, after uh, being hungry and thirst, of course the snow was our, was our water, so we had no thirst. But uh, you're just, you're, your body is not ready to go to sleep. So you fall down in the bottom of the hole and it's your turn to go to sleep for two hours. It, your, your body just can't just shut down. I mean, you're still, you're shaking, you're cold, you're tired, you're scared. So you, you go, drop into the bottom of the hole and your buddy stands up. Then when you finally get to sleep, you can hear shells flying over in both directions. Machine guns going off down the road, maybe a block or two. Uh, mortars, mortars going off. The Germans are throwing mortars at us. We were in a... We, we formed us, just like in the Old West, we circled the wagons. We formed us a perimeter defense, maybe about 70 of us. We had about 35 foxholes. And uh, the, the Germans were throwing big mortars at us. And you could hear a ping as the mortar left the tube a half a mile away or three quarters of a mile away. You could hear a ping, and you knew a mortar was on the way. And we knew it took 29 seconds for the mortar to land on us. So it got up to about 26 or 27 seconds. We just we just sucked it in as much as we could, you know, climbed into our steel, steel helmet, hopefully, and and hope we heard the noise of the explosion, which means it missed us. And but when it landed nearby and exploded, these are big big mortars. They would shower wood out of the trees. They would shower rocks and stone and uh, and of course snow. Just but it's just a very harrowing, a very harrowing experience to have these. And this lasted for a couple of days, these mortars landing on us. Uh, the German, the first morning, a German patrol attacked us. Uh, we drove them off and killed some of them. Uh, but they sprayed with their burp guns. They were spraying our, our position and uh, throwing, throwing their potato masher hand grenades at us. And I, I know that... Shortly after they left, we looked around to see if any of our guys were hit. And there was one foxhole right behind me. I was, I was here, another foxhole about where that wall is. And a kid named Joe Poland was in there. So I looked over and George was slumped down. Joe was slumped down, so I went over to check him and he had a bullet hole right between his eyes. One of the Germans just throwing bullets that hit him. So all we could do was pull his helmet down over his face for, for a, six, five or six days because we couldn't get him out of there. We, we had no medical attention. And he was dead anyway. About the third day, we, we ran out of food. We had no food for the next three days. Uh, the uh, snow was our water, so we had, we had no water problem. 
But uh, you, you wake up in the morning and you open your eyes, you're in the bottom of your foxhole, or so, yeah, you open up your eyes and you wonder, is today the day I'm going to get it? You just, you get pessimistic. You see, see so many people die that uh, it just, you just can't, you can't keep surviving forever, but we eventually, we eventually, when they, 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 they this huge, uh, the, the weather lifted, and so they have some airplanes were able to get in. So they started to take the pressure off us and, and, did, and uh, started fight, making the Germans start to retreat. So we were able to get out of there in about the sixth day, but still, we uh, had to carry our dead and wounded out of there. My mother used to clip, clip, clip newspapers at home, and she clipped some stuff out of one of the, it showed German prisoners carrying dead and wounded out of, a, out of, a, out of uh, the snow. And when I got home and I saw it, I said, God, I didn't know there was a photographer with us because it was, it was an absolute exact spitting image of us having our German prisoners that we'd captured there uh, bring, out, bring out our dead and our wounded. Uh, the Rhine River was, a, was a, a, another big battle. Uh, we, got to, we got to the Rhine River middle of, middle of March and uh, came to the top of a hill and we're looking down and here's the beautiful Rhine River Valley with the castles on the hills. It was a very impressive sight. Uh, I can't go into, I haven't got time to go into detail to tell you how we got down to the water's edge and how many homes we, oh, I can tell you this, we occupied, we put a squad of men in every fifth or sixth home along the water, along the banks of the river so the Germans couldn't come back. Fortunately, our home had four big crates of liquor in the basement. <laughs> I, as big as that, big as that table. Slow gin, dry gin, uh, brandy, uh, all kinds of, uh, and, and, and syrups. That, but just, it was a wonderful thing. We just hope we, <laughs> we, we, we wanted to stay there, we wanted to stay there for a while. But, but anyway, uh, they, they sniped at us. They, they, hit, they hit several of our guys at shooting at 600 feet, knocking down moving targets. That's good shooting. I, I, can't, I can't shoot that good. One of our kids found a motorcycle. So he, he was on the back street of this little town we were in. And from that, that street, was that town was maybe 200 yards wide. Then the river was 250 yards wide. And the Germans were on the, the snipers were on the other side of the river. And he was too tootling along on this motorcycle, and a German knocked him off that motorcycle from 600 yards, hitting moving target. Another one of our, our officers was running across the street from one building to the next. He got nailed right behind the ear. The bullet came out underneath his eye. Fortunately, fortunately didn't hit his spinal cord either, so he, he lived. But it, then the next day, three of our, two of our guys were down below the castle uh, in Needers Bay, just standing on the shoreline. My good friend of mine from Texas went down there and he says, what the hell are you guys doing here? There's Germans over there. And this one guy, Jim Massey, Jim said, ah, there's no Germans over there. He was dead within 10 seconds of saying that. He got hit by about 15 machine gun bullets from, that, from those fast-moving machines. The other guy also got hit, and, and my friend dragged him into a building that was right next to them, but 
he died a few minutes later. So it told us we gotta keep your fanning down because these guys are good, and and they'll they'll pick you off if you if you don't watch out. Jack, I want to ask you a question. Yeah. We talked today, you know, about the organization, you know, generational leadership, right? I mean, it's, it's what this organization is about. One of the things that you said to me early on in our relationship when I showed you a business card, you said, why is your title on that business card? Everyone knows you're the leader. And you made the significance of leadership. And I'd like to ask you, how important is it to be the leader versus to develop followership? Well... Of course, if, if a leader doesn't develop that in the people under him, he's in trouble. Uh, and and the, the young people that were with me, if, if, if they were, if they felt we had an, a, a holy cause, an honest cause, and we were pursuing that and trying to take, help protect our people back home, uh, we followed the orders. Uh, I don't remember seeing anybody be disrespectful, super disrespectful to an officer or to a superior uh, non-commissioned officer. Uh, some, some people would goof off of that. that. That was understandable under the pressure we were under. But, but you're absolutely right. There must be, the leader, a good leader must instill in those men a desire to a desire to follow and to follow orders and to and to execute the orders he's given, you know, in a sensible way. Jack, did you? Um, you just said something really interesting, which was you were if you knew it was a just cause, a holy cause, right? Um, other than Pearl Harbor, um, do you remember any moments where? it really hit you in the face to have a level of moral clarity about the war, about your role in it? Um, was it when you were liberating a concentration camp? Was there another moment when you saw that it was an epic yeah. kind of struggle? Yeah. No, I, th I think I think the Rhine River was my peak <laughs> uh, in, and just in, in feeling that we've done something great, we've done something good, uh, we're going to win. You have to have that confidence that you're going to win, that we did have that at that point in time. Is there, even now, you're, you're, the way you tell the story, it's almost like I could see you see uh, the battle. Are there times when you will smell something, see something, hear something that takes you back to that period of time? Uh, I, you know, you you read you read a book once in a while, or hit a movie once in a while that 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 deals with that time and place. Uh, it brings it brings back memories, of course, serious memories. Uh, I, I wake up at night sometimes thinking about it. It, it. I don't know if that's what wakes me. If that woke me up, or if I woke up and started thinking about it, but uh, it, it's it's with me every day. It's part of me. It's in my gut. It, it's I can't, I can't avoid it. I cannot get away from it. I want to go to a couple questions from the um, crew here. But when you look back on the war and your role in it, what do you think it was all for? And what do you wish we knew today? 
or are appreciated today? Well, what when, when, when you're when you're 19 years old and you're following orders, you it, it's not yours to what's that saying? It's not yours to wonder why. It's not yours to do or die. You hear that expression? Yeah, well, that's 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 it. Uh, we didn't stop to think that we we could do anything to change things. We had to do each day what we were told to do. Uh, not only, I think, not only to maintain our self-worth in ourselves, we had to feel that we were we were doing a job. And uh, now, when you look back on it, oh, what it, do you think? Uh, it doesn't change a thing. I just, I, I'm, I'm, I'm glad I survived. That's that. <laughs> having survived, I'm glad I did it. I'm glad I went through this mess. Uh, there, aren't, there aren't that many of us left that can say that, but uh, uh, and I'm proud of what I did. I'm very proud because I uh, I got I through it. I got through it. Uh, I held my head high. I uh, I had a certain amount of authority, uh, but again, I'm I'm so glad I survived. That's, yeah, talk about. You talk about asking the question of what it was like for you, and you've said many times you don't know why you really you didn't know the purpose of why you were there. You were just there. Yeah. Talk about the connection with the individuals in the towns that you liberated or the people that were occupied, and you, like when you talk about when you went into St. Hubert for the first time, when the when the first time that they had seen Americans in their village. Talk about the yeah. the emotion of the of the individuals from the other side of that conversation. Yeah. We, we rarely ever saw any civilians. The civilians stayed behind the German army. We went week after week after week without seeing any civilians. I wonder, we wondered, where the heck are they? What, what, what happened to all these people? But when we got to the Rhine River, they finally woke up to the fact that the, the Russians are over there now. So let's, let's, let's stay on the side of the good guys. And we, we had a better reputation than the Russians had, of course. So then we started to see civilians. We we started to see a lot of civilians, and uh, and, we, so, and we, were, we were seeing also a lot of DPs, displaced persons, people who had worked. Hitler had enslaved to work in his factories and in the field, and uh, all these people were under our feet now, and we didn't know what to do with them. We we just we couldn't corral them all and put them in pens. So they just they just littered the landscape <laughs> for miles around, but but they uh, they stayed out of the way of the fighting, of course. But uh, they were happy we were there. They were thrilled. But here, these poor people have been prisoners for five years. They're a thousand miles from where they came from. They have no way of getting there. They have no money. They they're they're flat broke. Uh, it's a sad situation, very sad situation for these people. I, I felt bad for them. We gave them decent food for the first time in years and medical attention as much as we could. But uh, they, they were so happy that we were there and we were glad to help them. There's, um, I have one last question for you, Jack. Um, one kind of interesting snippet, though, especially while Russia's at war with a country right now, um, during World War II, when 
the uh, Western forces, the American and British, etc., forces were moving into Berlin, or moving toward Berlin, and the Soviets were moving toward Berlin. As the Nazis started to surrender, they bolted towards the Mar Americans, just bolted. So they'd rather be a prisoner by the Americans than by the Soviets. Uh, just to real illustrate, in that much carnage, there was still a level of seeking refuge, which sort of blows my mind. My question, Jack, is a, is a bit of your observations about the country today. And one thing why I think our time with you tonight is, I think, one of the most important things that our community will ever do, period. And I, I genuinely believe that from the bottom of my heart. And the sacrifice puts so many things into perspective. And we as a country have not had a conflict where there was shared sacrifice, like truly shared sacrifice, broadly felt among the American people since Vietnam. And now a lot of our veterans, as you pointed out, are leaving this earth and the lessons are being left with them. And I really wonder if, if that was a little bit more in recent memory, um, a chance to meet more people like you, um, a chance to understand conflict, that we as American people would be nicer to each other, uh, we'd come together to solve bigger problems, uh, because we knew what was at stake. And I'll shut up with this one, and then I want to hear what you think. And I think this is something across every generation that's really important. Um, I was talking to H.W. Brands, he's a big historian, and we were talking about how the Civil War was an aftershock of the Revolutionary War, and the Civil Rights Movement was an aftershock of that, and we're just constantly fighting this effort for free people to be free. And he said that even in the Civil War, you know, Lincoln gave an appeal for a certain amount of volunteers. And at the beginning of the war, he got double the amount of volunteers. And the reason he got double the amount of volunteers is because people still had family alive who fought to be free in the first place. And we don't have that perspective at all anymore. No, no. And I so don't. what, does that bother you? How, to, to watch the American people kind of yeah, get yeah. a bit distant yes, from it? Yes, it does, it does bother me. Yeah, that, that. I feel like we're letting you down. I, I guess give, that's what I, I'm trying I, to say. I give, I give talks to young people every, every month. I'm giving talks at school, high schools. And the, the kids, the, the kids today at 19 could not do what we did. There's no, no, no question about it. Uh, they're not mature enough. They've, they've got too many distractions. They've got, uh, they've got too many pressures and problems. And, and it's up to, it's up to the, the, the top people running things to help solve those problems, help stop, take some of those pressures away. They've got drugs. They bring guns to school. They bring knives to school. Uh, the sex, it's it just, it's, 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 it's bad, it's bad. <laughs> and I just, I just hope that, uh, I hope something can be done about it, although it's, it's, it's a tough, tough problem. Can I, can I go back to the Rhine River for a minute? Yeah, please. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, okay, so the word came down that we're going to cross the river tonight at midnight. So the engineers brought 16 boats down, each boat uh, twice as long as that table and about a little bit wider, eight, eight men to a boat. And uh, so we get, we get 
pick up all of our gear, leave our house, walk down the back streets, get down to where the, the boats are, right below the castle, Castle Marksburg. And when you've got 16 boats and 140 men trying to get into those boats, they're making noise. The Germans knew we were coming. There's no question about that. Uh, but, and so just, we talked about good luck and bad luck in war. At about five minutes to 12, the captain came up to me and he said, Moran, I want a radio in your boat. Now, radio in those days was a 20-pound object strapped on somebody's back. Put the microphone up, Jack. Yeah, the, the radio in those days was a, about a 20-pound object strapped on the radio man's back. That little, that little thing you carry in your pocket now could do 10 times the work that that radio did. So anyway, so he said, I want you to take Frank Nagel and I want you to give me one of your men. I was number one in boat four, number two was my assistant, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. So I put Frank Nagel in the number three spot. Frank went, no, yeah, Frank sat down behind me, knelt down behind me. The kid from Minneapolis that was there went with the captain to a, to a different boat. So at exactly, exactly midnight, we, we put our boats in the water and we slowly start paddling out into the river. And we paddled for two or three minutes throughout, maybe 100 yards, 150 yards. All of a sudden, the Germans light up the river like Dodger Stadium at 9 o'clock. And just showtime. And, and they opened up on us with, with five heavy machine guns. The, the machine gun bullets are... <laughs> the machine gun bullets are pouring through us. Uh, I can feel bullets hitting my paddle. I, uh, uh, a, a bullet, a bullet singed me right here and killed Frank Nagel, that guy behind me that I just put in that spot. I could have put Frank any place else in the boat, but I put him in the number three spot, and he was dead five minutes later. And another, another bullet went through my pants here. I was, I was surrounded by bullets. Another burst went over my head, killed the engineer who was standing up in the back of the boat. He toppled over into the water. It was just, a, it was a massacre. And so I just kept screaming at my men to dig, dig, dig those paddles so we're paddling as hard as we can. The minute, the first minute the, the lights went on, all I could hear up and down the line was, uh-oh, I mean, we're, we're in trouble. And when the bullets started coming in, uh, I, heard pray, I heard praying, I heard cursing, I heard screaming from the wounded. It's just uh, the night was—it was, it was a, a nightmare. So we we finally worked. We finally got our got to the other, other side, knocked out several of the machine guns, but one was still firing firing down below. And just we we flopped on the beach, and we were we were drained physically, emotionally, psychologically. We were absolutely drained, and we laid there for a minute or two. And then the signal came up, came to, for us to get up and, and attack. So there, there about 70 of us left. Half of us have been killed or wounded. And we stand up and, and we're firing our M1 rifles from the hip. And you fire eight rounds and you can re, re, put another clip in there in a matter of a second and a half, two seconds. Boom, 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 keep on firing. We were firing into the dark. We couldn't see what we were shooting at, but we just wanted to make sure we kept the Germans pinned down as we as we advanced. And uh, 
we captured a couple, we killed some Germans that night. We captured a couple. One of the Germans we captured that night said, you guys made so much noise, I thought there were 700 of you. There only, <laughs> only 70 of us. But we, we, did this, we did the same thing to a town called Ormond, where, where I, I visited just a couple of weeks ago. And we're, we're, we'd just broken through the last of the big, the big cement bunkers in the, in the Siegfried line. And we're up on top of a hill looking down on Ormond. And, but it was open field all the way down, and the captain thought, we can't go charging down there because the Germans are in that town and they'll, they'll with their tanks, and they'll massacre us. So he said, I'm going to call in corps artillery. Now, corps artillery, the greatest scene I think I ever saw in my life. There are, each corps has so many divisions attached to it. Each division has so many artillery regiments attached to it. And, and so... Corps artillery means that every one of these regiments is going to fire their weapons, whatever size they have, so that all the shells arrive at the same moment on the target. So a minute after the captain gave the order to, for Corps artillery, I could hear the rumbling back over the horizon, just like thunder, you know, storm coming. The big 240 howitzers, long rifles, are firing those big 8-inch guns. Then the eight-inch howitzers are a little closer to us. Then the 155 long rifles are closer to us. And the 150 howitzers, 155 howitzers. Then the 105 long rifles, then the 105 howitzers. And all these, all these shells are going to land at the same moment. So I'm looking up, and I can see flickers of light as these, and you can hear them sound like a jet plane going over. And I look down at this little town down in the valley, and all of a sudden, these 200, uh, 540 shells landed and went off at the same time. It was, it was an absolute phenomenal thing. I think it, it cost the taxpayers a lot of money. Then. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but anyway, and, but then, but then, then we went, then we went uh, running down into the town to get into the town before they could react to this tremendous. Uh, tremendous uh, firepower that had just been unleashed on them. And so we hurried down in there, and the Germans had fled, taking their dead with, their wounded with them, but not their dead. They always leave their dead. My second, my number two man could speak German very fluently. <coughs> and we found an old lady and an old man down in the basement of one of these houses. And he, he talked to them. And the old woman said, she said, I thought it was the end of the world. She really did. Jack, you mentioned Dodger Stadium. So I think this is kind of borderline, right? It's just kind of San Diego, LA, kind of in between. So I think one of the first times we met, we were in church together. And the gentleman came in, sat down behind us and said, hello, Jack. Mm -hmm. And I looked at you and you said, yes, that's who you think it is. Tell me about your special friend. Oh, Vince Shelley? Oh, yeah. Yeah, Vincent, Vincent and I were dear friends. <clears throat> and you know, you know, Vince died August second, and I, I called Vince about the twenty fifth of July. I don't know why, just a hunch. I, and I said to him, I said, Vince, don't you dare think about dying before me. I'm going to go first. And he said, Okay, that's fine with me. <laughs> so, so 
So I, I was shocked. I was shocked to, to, to learn that Finch had died on, on the second. He's a great, great guy, a great human being. Uh, I can't say enough nice things about him. Everybody I, that ever talked about him has said the same thing. He's just a great Catholic, uh, loved God very much. He was just, uh, he was a saint. And he went, he went straight to heaven, that's for sure. In our division magazine, people would write in and their thoughts. One, one fellow wrote in about six months ago, and he said, my dad was in World War II in your division. He came home, he never said a word, he just said one thing. He said, I went to hell and I came back from hell. Another fellow wrote in several months later. Uh, he said, I went to hell I hope God remembers that, and when I die, I hope he takes me to heaven. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, All right. Well, let's get I need a couple questions. Okay. Yeah. Well, we'll get, well let's get the, the youngsters. Please. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. My hearing is not very How many? I'll ask I've him. I've had so many concussions that I... Jack... <laughs> <laughs> Jack, do you know how many houses the art uh, how many houses the artillery hit? That would have been the whole city. They wiped out the whole city. How many what? Houses. On the core artillery, the oh, whole, whole city. Oh God, that that town was probably a town of peacetime population, six or seven thousand people. That's that's a fair amount of houses, but to have them all evaporate at one time. All of them. That'd be a great. After the war, that'd be a good town to go to the roofing business. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, oh, um, Tristan, you? No? Sure? Okay. All right, the next youngest person, Nancy. <laughs> Firstly, thank you so oh, much oh, for you're sharing welcome. this. You're welcome. Um, I, I'm just curious your thought about this. When I was growing up, my dad was in was World War II. He was a mm -hmm. Purple Heart. And one day I was telling my mom a bunch of stories that my dad had shared with me about his experience. And she said, how do you know all of this? And I said, from my conversations with dad. And, and this was in the 70s. And she said, no, 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 we don't, you don't talk about that. You don't ask those questions. And my dad walked into the room and he said, no, I love that she asked me these questions. Because if we don't talk about it, it's a constructive narrative. And I want to share these stories because this was my life. And he said, I think there are a lot of vets like me that do, that are okay sharing these stories, but there's this sort of, this myth, this misnomer that you, you don't ask us those questions and you don't ask us to share. And, he's, and we've had this conversation because Michael yeah. is a vet, and same thing. Um, so I'm just curious. I, I, it's so lovely to hear you, as horrible as it is, yeah. because if we don't hear your story, we don't really understand. Yeah. And, and we're all different. Many many veterans wouldn't say, say boo, but many of them, I'm one of the few that, that I'm willing to talk about. It. It's, it's, uh, Jack the I same. want people to know what, what went on out there. Jack, in the same time, you never spoke to your can girls, I, can I, can Jack. Can I have two more minutes? Jack, <laughs> so, oh. <laughs> I got to tell you, one, one funny story, and that'll be the end of it. After, the, after his uncle was killed, we left that 
Hills, called Hills 360, circled around it, and went up into a town called Walsheim. And we again put a certain number of men in each home. The, the city was built around the village square with a fountain in the middle. And so we, we got in on the right-hand side. The, the house was built on a slope so that the backyard was like this. So the, you entered the house on the street level, but the basement back wall was above ground. So uh, about the second day we were there, some of our guys caught a chicken. Now all, that's the first piece of barnyard uh, cow or chicken or anything that we found. Because the Germans had stripped, they had stripped the grounds, they had taken everything with them. So if they found this chicken, he'd been hiding someplace. They found him and killed him and took out the feathers and got him ready to go. And they only had wooden stoves, they had no gas, they just had wooden stoves. So, so we cooked up, started up the fire, we put, put the, the chicken in this pan, stuck it in the wood oven and turned on the fire. Now the smoke is coming out the chimney, and there's a couple. There's two Tiger tanks parked on a mesa about a mile away, and they saw this smoke coming out of the chimney. And they thought, "Well, we're going to mouse up that dinner party." So the, the first 88, after it was shortly after the, the, we got the chicken going, the first 88 hit the back wall of the basement and ripped out the, the back wall of the basement. The second 88 exploded in the basement. Underneath the, underneath the kitchen, went up, ripped out the kitchen floor, dropped our oven and our chicken into the basement. <laughs> so we were, we were, we couldn't salvage that. The, the third idiot, you all, you all know what an outhouse is, I, I presume. This, this house had an, this house had an in-house outhouse in the basement. So the third idiot came in and took out the in-house outhouse. So. That increased the mess that we were in. <laughs> now, now fortunately for us, they, when they built this house, they built a stairwell going down into the basement, and the, the farmers pulling up old big rocks out of the farmland built them on the side of the wall and cemented them in. And all the explosions were over here, so we were on just far enough away so while we were being showered with dust, dirt, waste, and uh, other things, we didn't get hit. But one of the boys, kids from Mexico City, the Germans had done a lot of uh, home preserves in the basements, vegetables, fruit, etc. He found a, a jar of plums, I think they were, and so we're sitting on this stairwell, and all these, these 88s are going off, and, and we're going, it's just deafening us. And while we're sitting on the stairwell, he dropped this jar of red liquid on the helmet of the guy right below him. And so this guy, all of a sudden, he's got red fluid flowing down his arm, and he, he thinks he's been hit. And, and he's so mad at one, he could have killed him. <laughs> <laughs> little, little levity in war, but not much.
Okay, that's what I, I, could, I could talk for a few more hours. I, well, I, I could listen. Oh, man. Michael, did you have a question? Was it the last one? Yeah, I did. Yeah. Okay. Can you hear me okay? Yeah. yeah. Um, Jack, I'm, I'm grateful to be here. I appreciate you being here. Thank you. Um, my grandfather was in the Battle of the Bulls. He was in the 80th Division, um, 318th Army. And I grew up on stories like this. I grew up on stories about uh, you know, the, the same sort of stories you're telling me. And when I see the flag, I feel like I have a picture of what it means to be an American. I have a picture of what, what the flag means that a, a lot of young people don't have anymore. Yeah. And I'm curious, you, you talk to kids at schools, which is incredible, thank you for that. I, I'm curious what you, want, what you want those kids to leave with and what, what you want these kids to leave with of what, it, what being an American means and what the flag really means to you. How do you want to leave that? You, you mean what our government should do? <laughs> Wait, I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> Jack, we talked. We we talked. We talked in the in the car today, and you had mentioned what you think's missing in America today. What's missing? Oh, <laughs> that, that's a good. That could be a, that could be a shopping list. I'll tell you. Uh, well, of course, love is, is up there near the top. Respect, respect for law and order. Uh, every morning I pick up the paper, there's shootings, shootings, knifings, uh, home invasions. I mean, just <clears throat> there's just so much lawlessness. And uh, groups are coming in from Middle Eastern countries and South American countries in groups to, to, to commit these crimes. And uh, while we're all law, supposedly all law-abiding citizens, uh, we're being attacked by the criminal element in this country. That, and the drugs are, are fostering much of this. The kids, the, the people, not kids necessarily, but people of all ages that need money to go take care of their drug habits, they will come and invade your home and, and, and steal from you. They will try to steal your car. They're, there's no question about that. Uh, Sir, I, I don't have a question. Uh, sort of a question, more of a compliment. I don't think most of the people here know. I think they all know the Battle of the Balls. They've heard of it. I don't think they know that your divisions performed one of the greatest military maneuvers in history. When you were told, facing Germans to your east, that you were to turn your side to them and within 48 hours move to the north to the Battle of the Balls. Yeah. What did you think when they told you that? Uh, just hard to, it was hard to believe. And of course, it was done under such horrific conditions. Just again, being in open bed trucks, zero, zero temperature, riding through the snow, trying to get. I've got a copy of an article about that movement. It said, Patton said he would be in, be in Belgium in 40, 40 hours. Down below it said, Eisenhower said it couldn't be done. A little history of this. Patton did not like Bernard Montgomery. That, that's no secret. That probably might have been hate, I don't know, but a great deal of dislike. So Bradley had a meeting with Patton and Montgomery when the bulls broke through. And he said, I need you guys up in Belgium right away to help out. 
Montgomery said, I'll be up there in four days or five days. Patton said, I'll be up there in three days. Now, if Montgomery said, I'll be up there in three days, Patton would have said, I'll be up there in two days, because Patton was not going to let Montgomery ever get the best of him. So we got us up there in three days. Okay, I've said enough. <laughs> <laughs> Give Jack a round of applause. Thank you. Thank you, Jack. No, no, please, have a seat, have a seat. Thank you. So, couple, couple housekeeping. Who's going to take up a collection? I know. I, <laughs> I love it. Um, there are a couple, remember when we did the, the trip Todd was talking about, a, a, a World War II trip. We were fortunate to meet with the son of the longest, uh, I don't know what the right word would be, but in, let's say inhabitant, the longest inhabitant, the longest, the person who was in Auschwitz the longest. Oh, yeah. And it was because he was a prisoner there. And then after the war, he went back to lead it and turn it into an institution that people could go back to see what human beings are capable of. And, and so his son grew up in and around Auschwitz. And I, I asked him why, like what, all these facts and figures and stories and people and names, and, and I'm like, how do you keep up with that? And what is it you wish people knew? And he said, I, I wish they knew why. It wasn't just that Hitler was a really bad guy and Tojo was a bad guy and Mussolini was a bad guy. Um, they wanted conquest because they wanted a pure race. They wanted to control and dominate other human beings. Uh, it was the antithesis of freedom and so it was truly about an existential threat to self-determination. It wasn't just this army and that army. And that's sort of the point about you, you really have to pay attention beyond and beneath the news stories and even the history books to, to really get close to what it, what, it, what it meant. And I remember when we, were, we took D-Day veterans back to Normandy on the 75th anniversary of D-Day. And I'll never forget it. We were standing in Omaha Beach with some young men like Jack and they were surrounded. There were 101st Airborne American soldiers that were fanboying on the veterans. There was a long line of people from Europe. And I remember a woman, an elderly woman, who was bawling but happy. She couldn't even control herself getting a chance to meet an American GI. And she sent her granddaughter to go grab their hand and just thank them because she spoke, because the little girl spoke English. And she said, my daughter, or my, my, my grandmother has told me about you and people like you my entire life. And thank you because I have a life because of you. And the grandmother was doing it. And then the, every single one of the veterans turned right into saying, you have to tell this story. You have to tell this story because we too easily forget. Uh, you could learn the lesson the, the, the warm and enjoyable way with Jack telling it, or we could learn the lesson the hard way because we're not being the best versions of ourselves and we're not being vigilant. Um, I don't know, I don't want to learn the lesson the hard way. I'd much rather learn it the, 
the enjoyable way through Jack. <laughs> Let me add something to your story. In 26 months, Tommy and I will be at D-Day, at D-Day 80th celebration, and it's going to be the last one. Wow. There can be no more celebrations of D-Day after, after, after that one. So Tom and I are going to be there. You're such a stud. I said, I said this to you in the car. So there's, two, there's two things left on your bucket list, right? Going back to... So there's two things left on your bucket list. Yeah. Going back to... Yeah, going back to Normandy. Normandy. And the second one is pinning Thomas's rank, right? The second one is... Thomas. Pinning Thomas's rank. Oh, yeah, yeah. His son, his son will graduate in two years. That's the same month that... that we go to Normandy. Right. That's, your, that's your deal with him. Yeah, and I'll be there to pin his bars on his shoulders when he graduates at BMI. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Yeah. So, okay, now the housekeeping. And one of the things, part of how this came to be was Bill. Uh, Bill Lyon and I were having coffee, and Bill's the, uh, what do you all call it? Learning Chair, Education Chair at YPO. And Bill was just talking about the lessons that He's, he's engaging the YPO members on. And, um, and so we were, we were talking about how important it is for every generation to understand what the greatest generation went through and why. Um, and at least to me, when I was listening to Jack, a very profound undercurrent to me was this idea of duty and commitment. How many times did he say, I didn't think about it, I just did it. That's what I was supposed to do. We don't, in modern life, we, we think a lot about what we want to do. We don't think a lot about what we are supposed to do. And every question, and the other veterans, and I was like, what'd you do when you got home? What was it like? They're like, I got a job and took care of my family. Because that's what I was supposed to do. Yeah. Um, and the, this idea of duty and this idea of commitment allows you to do profound and amazing things in your own life and for the lives of others. And so... It, and it was through that that this conversation with Bill kicked up Jack. And it was around the time we were doing this D-Day trip that um, a member in Arizona, Charles Keller, befriended Jack and connected us and then connected my son to Jack. And so now my son tells uh, Jack Happy Father's Day before he tells me Happy Father's Day. <laughs> but it's, uh, it's earned, that's for sure. Can I, can I add yeah. two, two, sorry, two quick stories? <laughs> <laughs> We're out in the middle of the Rhine River. The lights are <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the machine guns are roaring. Uh, my, one of my good friends, the one who went down to, to, to get those guys off the beach that got machine guns that day. Okay. So his boat, the, the, the racing, trying to get out into the middle of the river to get going. The engineer in the back of the boat decides he doesn't like this. He's going back home. So he started to turn the boat around to go back this way. So my friend pulled out his 45 and stuck it in his face and said, you son of a bitch, you turn this boat back around and I'm gonna blow your brains out right now. So the guy thought, well, if I go that way, I got a chance to make it. If I go this way, I don't have a chance. <laughs> so he and kept on. Last, last story. Valentine's Day, 1945. A good friend of mine, in fact, I used to go deer hunting with him up in northern Wisconsin back in the late 30s. He was that good a friend. Just coincidentally, we both got sent to the same division. <clears throat> He's an artillery spotter. and that, That's a guy who 
gets into the second story of homes and watches the shells exploding on the enemy <coughs> and phones back and correct, corrects the aim if it's, if it's over or short, left or right. Anyway, Bob is in this house. An 88 comes screaming through the window and explodes in this room, ripped out Bob's left kidney. And he's laying on the floor bleeding to death. That, a lot of blood will come out of somebody losing a kidney. So he's laying on the floor. And within minutes, the Germans attack that building and drive us out of the building, leaving Bob there. You can't, we didn't have time to pull Bob out of there. So Bob's laying there on the floor bleeding to death. The Germans come into the room, and three, three Germans, and I've talked to Bob any number of times about this, and he thought the first thing one of them would do would be to pull out his Luger and blow Bob's brains out, get him, put him out of his misery. And, but one of them was a medic, and he had some bandages with him, so he tied tight bandages around Bob's stomach to stop the blood from leaving his body. He couldn't stop the internal bleeding, of course, but he could stop the blood from escaping his body. And, and then uh, oh, 15, 20 minutes later, we came back and drove the Germans out of that house and got Bob and took him to a hospital, and he lived. Yeah. He, he died in that Sun Rose of Fire about eight or nine years ago. Aww. Yeah. That's it. All right. <laughs> well, if you think of anything else, you let me know. <laughs>